Donald Jeffries Show. And welcome to the Donald Jeffries Show. This is Donald Jeffries. My guest today is a, a very impressive writer. Robert Rosen has written uh, several books. He's written uh, the provocatively titled Bobby in Nazi Land, a Brooklyn memoir about growing up in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s. Beaver Street, a history of modern pornography. But for our, and he also has written for The Village Voice, uh, the UK Independent, lots of other uh, periodicals. But for our purposes, we're going to be discussing primarily his book, Nowhere Man, The Final Days of John Lennon, which is an international bestseller. So, Bob, welcome to the show. Hi, Don. It's good to be back. As we were just saying before going on the air, that we had already met on Bob Wilson's show at the very end. I think, yeah, I think you, we did. I, and and uh, Bob Wilson is a good friend of mine, and he does have me on uh, his show quite a bit. And uh, so that's that's. I'm glad you remember that. Now I remember it now, too, as well. But uh, as we discussed a little bit before the show, um, John Lennon is my favorite Beatle. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters of all time. I think he's one of the uh, the greatest uh, musical artists of the 20th century. And, and uh, I think he could have done even a lot more if he didn't have a kind of a Brian Wilson like uh, tendency, you know, when he became a heroin addict, that obviously killed his creativity. But um, so let's talk about John. First of all, what, what caused you to want to write this book? Were you a big John Lennon fan as well? Just a big Beatles fan? Or what, what was the uh, motivation for this book? Well, I talk about that in the first chapter of the book, and or maybe the second chapter. But yeah, I was a Beatles fan, not like a huge Beatles fan, but a Beatles fan like a lot of other people were that you know, over the course of my uh, adolescence and childhood, I bought maybe four Beatles albums, and the first album I ever bought was Meet the Beatles after seeing them on the Ed Sullivan Show like a billion other people. <laughs> right. But, you know, <laughs> I was uh, a Beatles fan, but I wouldn't describe myself as a huge Beatles fan, and I more or less stopped following them when they broke up, which was, you know, 1970, 71, whenever that finally went down. So the reason I did this book was, you know, A, I knew enough about the Beatles that I was able to do it. But what happened was a close friend of mine at the time, his name was Fred Seaman. Uh, we met at City College on the newspaper there. Uh, he, after he graduated from college, John Lennon hired him as his PA, and uh, his first day on the job, he came to me and he said, you know, I've got to do a book about John, and I'd like you to help me. Fred always admired my writing, and at that point, you know, he'd graduated a couple of years after I did. At that point, you know, I was already uh, a published journalist, and uh, I was you know, looking around for a book that I could finally get published. And when Fred came to me with this idea the day he started working for John, uh, you know, I said, well, this is going to be the book. And this was February 1979 that he started working for him. And between February 79 and December 1980, when John was killed, Fred would keep me informed about everything going on in the Dakota with John and Yoko and Sean. And this was the period where Lennon had dropped out and uh, he wasn't making music. He, uh, you know, wasn't talking to the press. He was just 
more or less or you know trying to be or pretending to be a house husband and uh as everybody knows he was killed in 19 uh, December 8th 1980 and a couple of days after he was killed Fred came to me and said now's the time to start doing the book and you know that was obvious and you know, we were in a state of shock but what happened too was that summer in Bermuda, John had gone down to Bermuda with with Fred, and while he was there, he was recording the demo tape for, for Double Fantasy. And according to Fred, what John told him in Bermuda that summer was that he had a premonition of his death, and that if something should happen to him, that it was Fred's job to tell the true story of his life and to avail himself of any research material he he needed to be able to do that and Fred gave me John's diaries his his personal diaries that he was keeping between January 1975 and the day he was killed and the book grew out of that experience with you know, working with with Fred and having John's diaries. Wow, that's so. It's, so, and you basically, and obviously, as the, as the title suggests, it's the final day. So, um, so it's a bit of a of a uh, misrepresentation, I guess, for most of us think of of John Lennon in those. Uh, I guess it was the last five years or whatever. We went into exile and was baking bread and uh, being a you know house husband. Uh, a Mr. Mom, whatever you want to call it, with Sean and being the kind of father to him, I guess, that he, he was beginning to realize he hadn't been with Julian because he really, you know, treated his first son and his wife pretty pretty badly. And I think, as you mentioned in the book, it looks like he was kind of finally experiencing some regrets about that. But in reality, you're saying he, was, uh, he wasn't exactly what, what that was being represented as. And in fact, he was uh, really just kind of a a bitter or frustrated uh, ex-superstar and was raging and talking about Christ all the time. So give us an idea of what really was going on behind the scenes there in the Dakota. Well, it's not like he never baked bread. He might have baked bread once or twice. And, yeah, he certainly was a father to Sean, but he had a staff to, you know, take care of all the household stuff and a nanny to bring up Sean. So... He acted as a father when he was in the mood to act as a father. And, yeah, I mean, that happened a lot more frequently than his baking bread. And, you know, he certainly cared for Sean. You know, Sean was the the best thing that ever happened to him. But, you know, he, he had the, uh, the governess to raise Sean. And, yeah, he was, I don't know if bitter is really the word, but he had made a conscious decision to you know stop making music and you know just concentrate on his uh his life for you know for for 5 years the first 5 years of Sh- of Sean's life he was going to concentrate on being a father as much as he wanted to and just you know living life and you know what he did during those 5 years was uh well he kept a diary he you know kept a diary virtually every single day and you know that was what came in to my hands uh, he spent a lot of time sleeping he spent a lot of time watching tv he smoked a lot of weed 
he would occasionally travel. He went to uh, uh, to Japan a couple of times. He went to Cape Town in South Africa once. Um, but you know, he he had like three different homes: the Dakota, a place on Long Island, and a place in Palm Beach. So you know, he would go there to those three homes, and he learned how to sail. But he spent a lot of time isolated, reading, writing, watching TV, smoking weed, um, practicing what's called lucid dreaming, which is when you learn how to program your dreams. And a lot of his journal became dream journals, where he spent more time recording his dreams than he did his waking life. And uh, one of the surprising things to me was how deeply he was into the occult, which was something that Yoko had gotten him into. So he practiced numerology and 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 magic. They had a full-time tarot card reader who read their cards virtually every single day, and you know they almost didn't make a, a move without running it by the tarot card reader, whose name, well, they called him him Charlie Swan. His real name was John Green. So, you know, they were consulting him all the time about everything you could possibly think of, from business deals to, you know, should we buy this house? Should we go here? Should we do this? Should we do that? And, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's how he spent his time. Well, I, I find it fascinating that he, I mean, I understand he was going away from music, but for somebody is, and if, you know, I've, again, I've, I probably know too much about the Beatles because I, I loved them when I was a little kid. You know, I was I was uh, yeah, I was a big fan of them at age seven or whatever it was when they first hit the scene, and uh, you know, so I bought their records all the time. And and, and uh, John became my favorite rapidly when I, I started realizing as I got older that God, this guy really is incredible. But for somebody, if you look at the way the Beatles were structured, that John dominated the early Beatles. And those are the sounds that I still I still love that era of their career the best and then he kind of when he started getting into drugs and especially when he became a heroin addict he, his productivity just petered off and paul superseded him and as you mentioned in there he, there was a lot of resentment there but why especially because he doesn't seem like he's really on anything heavy and the period of time you're talking about it doesn't seem like he's incapacitated by drugs any longer why do you think this creative urge which he had a prodigious output of fantastic pop songs when he was very young, uh, why, why do you think that wasn't in him? It doesn't seem like he spent much time, you know, he was writing in his diary, but why why wasn't he picking up a guitar or going to the piano and, and, and trying to, there was just no music in him? No, he, well, he was spending a lot of time writing. I'd say uh, over those five years, the bulk of his creative energy was going towards writing in the journals. And he wrote a, sh a short novel too called Skywriting by Word of Mouth. But he would pick up the guitar and he was thinking about music, like a couple of the songs that ended up on the Double Fantasy album, that he had been thinking about them for a long time. For example, the song Watching the Wheels, that I think it was <clears throat> 1977 or so. And Double Fantasy came out three years later. But in 1977, I think it was, he had dinner with uh, a business associate who, and you know, this was in the in the middle of John's 
withdrawal from society. And the guy told him that he was crazy that, uh, you know, he should get back and, you know, into, into making music and making money and, uh, you're letting this, you know, amazing opportunity pass you by. And like, you know, what are you doing? You got to get back now. And he comes home from this dinner and he writes in his diary, people say I'm crazy. And three years later, that became the opening line for watching the wheels. But he had felt he lost his muse, that he was writing some music, but he didn't think very much of it. He could, you know, What he was doing, he considered paint-by-numbers kind of thing. And when he went down to Bermuda, as I was talking about before, he went down there to recapture his muse. And he did, in fact, recapture the, uh, the muse. And, uh, you know, the music poured from him. But in 1975, when he dropped out, he was just burnt out on the music business, despised the music business. He had been under contract what, since like 1962, and he, he just he needed to stop. He needed to get away and recharge, and that's what he did for five years. And you know, the things I described him doing, that was how he chose to recharge. Do you, do you think that he, because he was so political, and I, uh, <clears throat> you know, as, as a guy that I write a lot about conspiracies and corruption, so I'm down the rabbit hole all the time. And uh, but uh, I, I know that uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of Paul Krasner. He was uh, he, he was wrote the Realist along with May Brussel. I know big who time. Paul Krasner is. Oh yeah, absolutely. yeah, right. Well, I communicated with him years ago, and just. Because I had heard, you know, working with Mark Lane as a teenage volunteer, uh, as you know, that see, he was like my hero, uh, the biggest Warren Commission critic, and it was very exciting to work with the Citizens Committee of Inquiry. But uh, Lane told me about how interested McCartney was in, uh, you know, the uh, his work because he didn't think Oswald did it either. And uh, but I had to, I said, well, as, as political as Lenin is, he must have had an interest. I really hadn't heard of that. But Krasner, who was a really good friend of the Lenin and Lenin and Yoko, uh, told me that, yeah, he was he was really obsessed with all that stuff. And uh, you mentioned in the you know, in your book uh, about him being interested in UFOs. So uh, Lenin seems to have been I get the impression that if Lenin, the longer Lenin lived, if he'd been alive, that he might have entered my world at some point, because he seems like he was really he was really into alternative thinking. And I as political as he was, I can't believe that he wouldn't have been doing it or involved in something politically. I don't think it would have been mainstream. If he had lived, you're talking about. Right, right, right. Well, over those five years, and it's those, you know, I certainly know about <clears throat> the Beatles before 1975. I did not know that McCartney was uh, interested in Mark Lane's work. I mean, I have not heard that name, Mark Lane. I don't know how long now, but uh, yeah, wasn't he some conspiracy theorist or something like that? I mean, that's uh, my yeah. association with. Yeah, well, he wrote. He, he he wrote Rush to Judgment, which was the. Uh, the biggest bestseller, you know, in the world ever on the JFK assassination. He was one of the first ones. He was also hired by Oswald's mother to to represent his interest. He he was actually a lawyer before the Warren Commission. They you know, they didn't let him do much. But so he he was very involved in it. So when I first started getting that, he was this was my you know, my hero. But uh, yeah, he he told me that, and I McCartney was actually supposed and did write a soundtrack 
for because uh, Mark Lane put a film out, Rush, Rush to Judgment, uh, based on this book. And McCartney wrote the songs, but I don't know what happened. He withdrew them or whatever, and I've never heard yeah. anything. Yeah, I've never heard yeah, anything. I, but <laughs> this is all news to me. But, you know, you were asking about Lenin and politics and, you know, what yeah. I could speak with some authority on right. are the last five years. And just like music, he had pretty much let go of politics that in the diaries there are very, very few political references of any kind. But there are some. And, for example, one of them was... They went to Jimmy Carter's in um, his inauguration, but you know that's not really a political statement. It was just this is where we went, and there's like you know pictures of them there, you know, all dressed up. But the only actual political statement of any kind that I recall him making over those five years was that when Reagan was elected president, he said we're they're going to shoot Reagan. And we're going to get George Bush, and we'll have the CIA yeah. president. And uh, well, he was right. They shot <laughs> Reagan, but he yeah. he wasn't killed. And you know, John was killed before Reagan yeah. was shot. But so, you know, so, he called that one. Wow! So that's that's a, that's one of his diary entries. Yeah, yeah, and that's wow. the real. That's really the only political thing that I could think of. You know, that had anything to do with politics. Yeah, I mean, it's like another thing I thought of, maybe it's sort of borderline political, but uh, what was it? The uh, the Vietnamese bo uh, the boat people crisis that um, uh, Kurt Walheim was the UN Secretary General at the yes. time, and he wanted uh, the Beatles to reunite. And uh, <laughs> Kurt Waldheim money. wanted the Beatles. That's interesting. Yeah, Kurt Waldheim <laughs> wanted the Beatles to reunite and raise money for the boat people. And, uh, um, you know, when John Lennon heard about this, his reaction was basically, fuck that Nazi. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, oh, it was... Oh, can I not say that? <laughs> no, no, no I, I think you can say anything. Because no, it's, it's not, you know, this is this this is going out live, and but it's... Uh, it's it's rebroadcast probably at three in the morning, considering what my subject matter usually is on several you know radio stations across the country. So I, maybe they would bleep that out if they do that. But uh, like, yeah, it just, I just uh, uh, sometimes I forget myself and I just nah. watch my tongue. Oh, that's <laughs> okay. You don't, you don't have to watch your yeah, watch language. your tongue, boy. <laughs> you don't have to watch your language too much. Here, there's a couple questions for you in the chat room. Uh, do you think Yoko purposely got pregnant and got John back on heroin to steal John back from May Pang? John was not John was not a heroin addict at that time. That there were a couple of times over those five years where he snorted a little heroin and uh, hated himself for doing it that no they wanted you know john and yoko wanted very much to have a child and uh you know quite the opposite they stopped taking all drugs as yoko was attempting to get pregnant and you know that's pretty much public record and uh you know it, it appears to be true and no i don't think that yoko had to steal john back from maypang that the way John saw it, you know, May was fun. She was just fun to to be with. Mm -hmm. But Yoko was survival, 
and you know ultimately she became the mother of his child and he went back to Yoko because he needed to survive but he always carried a torch for May Pang and he would sneak off and see May as much as he could which you know sadly for him wasn't very often I see um, somebody wants to and this is up my alley because I wrote a little bit at my book on uh on borrowed fame about the entertainment industry, which just came out the end of last year. Uh, I wrote about the Lenin assassination in some detail, but uh, what do you know about, uh, what do you think about Jose Perdomo, who was the uh, doorman at the Dakota and a very suspicious character in in my mind, because he he ran around with a lot of the same anti-Castro-Cuban exile group that was swirling around Lee Harvey Oswald and those people at the time. Are, were you aware of his background? Because a lot of us find that very no, strange. I, yeah, I know who Jose Padermo is. He was the doorman at the Dakota. Um, other people have told me that they're confusing him with somebody of the same name who oh. did work for the CIA. That uh, it, No, I don't think the doorman... You know, Jose Padermo or any other doorman was involved with the killing that, you know, I I do not discount conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, JFK, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still keeping an open mind on that one after all these decades. But no, I don't think Lenin was the victim of a conspiracy. I think that Mark David Shaman was... Uh, a deeply disturbed person who, uh, you know, had a psychotic breakdown. Well, well, even even more than Chapman's kind of curious background, I, I found one thing I found amazing when I was researching my book is that uh, <clears throat> I didn't realize Chapman was married before he shot Lennon, and his his wife has remained loyal to him. I, I know. Mean, I mean, let's talk about uh, for better or worse. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's been, you know, 40 years, you know, 42 years that he's been yeah. locked up, and I think he's allowed conjugal visits. Yes, so, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. He's he's, he's led almost a, a, a normal married life, you know, in kind of a twisted well, way. Well, I but, don't know about uh, not normal, about but, that, yeah. but uh, yeah, as, you know, normal as he could be when you're in a, right. a maximum security prison. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think you. There's another question. I think you answered this. Did John, did John, John dream about his death ahead of time? And you're saying he did have a premonition, or did, he, did I miss yeah? And you know, the most obvious uh, example of the premonition is the song. Uh, he recorded it on the Double Fantasy demo tape. It didn't make it onto that album. That was released on his posthumous album, Milk and Honey. Uh, that song was called living on borrowed time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know that's uh, pretty much says pretty much says it all right there yeah exactly um so you know and again looking i i find the dynamic between the beatles fascinating you know it's, it's, it's just somebody who's been a fan of them since i was a little kid and uh you didn't address like the song really vicious song that lennon wrote uh about uh McCartney, uh, how do you sleep? Which uh -huh. was, you know, really vicious, and, and uh, I'm sure that that stung McCartney. McCartney, but I, I didn't realize their relationship was that bad 
at the time Lennon is you know basically in seclusion or he's basically turning McCartney away and he's calling him McAsshole behind the scenes and <laughs> and also calling uh, Mick Jagger McFaggot or something. I mean, this yeah, is yeah. I mean, this is fascinating to to see this stuff. So, what do you think that uh, you didn't really address that? I always felt because you know I. I liked McCartney's work with the Beatles, but I, I just thought as an artist, single artist, a lot of this stuff was so lame and milk toast. And I just uh, to me, I just, and I just wonder if Lennon was it as much jealousy or was he also just mad that that he, maybe he was putting out? I know he used to call it uh, his granny stuff or something like that when there was the be- but and he was talking about like hello goodbye when it's the Beatles, but I, I can't imagine what he thought of like silly love songs and let him in and and things like that. He must've just cringed when he heard that. Is there any evidence that he was just really upset at the kind of the quality of work of these hit singles McCartney was putting out? No, there was no evidence. No, there was just the main emotion he felt towards McCartney was jealousy that, you know, McCartney was just always out there and whatever the quality of the songs, you know, they were, you know, they were hits and, um, Lennon was obsessed with McCartney and I was surprised to the extent that he thought about McCartney virtually every single day and you know what's McCartney doing and uh, uh, you know when he when John wasn't making music that when he would make headlines when he bought the house in Palm Beach or when Yoko sold a cow for uh, a quarter million dollars, which was a record-setting price at the time, and this made headlines that Lennon would consider these things a, a great victory over McCartney. That one of in early 1980, one of Lennon's happiest moments was when McCartney was busted in Japan for mar- um, yeah. marijuana, <laughs> and the uh, the tour was co- you know was called off, and uh, you know McCartney went to jail and. That was, you know, John was absolutely jubilant. Wow. And, yeah, yeah. And, but when he was in Bermuda trying to recapture the muse and, you know, get the demo tape going for Double Fantasy, what got him into gear was was listening to McCartney 2 and the song Coming Up, which, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the song... Oh yeah, I you am. realize every word of it is addressed directly to John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got. He's I kinda, hope that yeah. we can get together, stick around, and see. Yeah, that's he's talking to John. Yeah, yeah. So you think? So, so do you think that it, Lennon was maybe preparing to, uh, you know, to to become friendly with McCartney again, or? Well, he might become friendly with him. I mean, I don't think he hated. Well, you know what he said in so in in so many words is, "I love Paul like a brother, but I don't like him." So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think he really wanted to hang around with McCartney, and it was also explicitly clear in the diaries that he had no interest whatsoever in a Beatles reunion that, you know, to him that was going backwards and he wanted to move forward. So, uh, yeah, it was just clear that wasn't going to happen. Obviously, if he had lived, you know, maybe he would have had a change of heart. But, you know, at that moment, at that time, no, you know, no Beatles reunion. 
Okay. Yeah, we have and somebody in the chat room is back. We have all you know people that are they think uh, the alternative way. Is there there is there any truth to the rumor uh, that that uh, that John was inadvertently uh, responsible for Stu Sudcliffe? Dying by hitting him in the head in a fit of rage. I mean, you describe him being kicked in the head uh, when they were attacked by some uh, gang members or something. Yeah, I have no firsthand information about that. I mean, you know, I've I've heard that story, and I okay. don't know if it's true. I know that John had a lot of feeling for Stu, and that when he thought about him, he would make uh, a notation in his diary expressing sadness. In fact, let's see, he had read the Henry Miller book, Black Spring, mm -hmm. and uh, he said something to the effect of, that reminds me of my days in Hamburg with Stu. And, you know, he would just say a couple of words about how sad it made him feel to think about Stu. Well, and so he's he's got these tremendous uh, you know issues with McCartney, and he seems to be obsessed with him as well. And uh, I'm interested in what you wrote about Harrison, though, because he's he's having sex dreams about Harrison. He doesn't know why, and yet he they were really they were really like bitter enemies at the end, or whatever. He he was really had frozen George out of his life. Why was the relationship so bad with Harrison there? And he never really explained it. I think, you know, it was kind of stupid things or it struck me as stupid things like uh, uh, Harrison wrote that book, uh, uh, I Me Mine, and either he, he didn't mention John or he barely mentioned John. And, you know, John, that really pissed John off that uh, he was barely mentioned or not mentioned in Harrison's book. But it, it doesn't seem to be, you know, anything in particular. And he just seemed to be nursing uh, a grudge over some, some petty things. And I'm sure, you know, again, he would have gotten over it if if he'd lived. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would think so. I, I always wonder, you know, to, to, in my way of thinking, the traveling Wilburys is the uh, the best thing George Harrison was associated with because he didn't get to do a whole lot with the Beatles. But I, I was w wondering what uh, Lennon would have thought of that because I, I have a feeling he would have been even more jealous maybe than he was in McCartney because Harrison was working with, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, and Roy Orbison and these and Tom Petty. I, I, I would. Just I know you have no way of knowing that, but hypothetically, do you, do you think that he probably might have been a little jealous of that? Uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about what <laughs> Lennon would have thought of the traveling Wilburys had he lived. But, you know, now that you – yeah, he he probably, uh, you know, would have been jealous. But what, the traveling Wilburys, that was mid-1980s, late-1980s? Right, right, right. So is that – Yeah, I've, I mean – that's a, a long time between, you know, 80 and, you know, 1988 or whatever that was, you know, maybe yeah. 89, 90. Right, but, right. yeah, that he might have had a change of heart. You know, all these people who say they're never getting back together, all these groups. Yeah, yeah, you know, they, yeah. They, they, they get back together. So, Because uh, yeah, I, 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 always, I always thought that Paul, he never said anything, but I always thought Paul must have been jealous to some degree. Because I mean, he, he, Paul got to work with my favorite. I love Elvis Costello, so that you know Elvis kind of worshipped him. So they worked together. But he had to have some kind of feeling. You know, George is working with Dylan and Tom Petty and Roy Orbison and Jeff Lynne of ELO, and I, making know. better music than Wings. Yeah, yes, <laughs> a whole lot better music in my view. <laughs> you could probably tell I'm a little prejudiced against McCartney's music, so that's why. Um, you know, I just, I just, and I. That's why I just wonder. There isn't a whole lot on the record other than the How Do You Sleep 
uh, song that Lennon wrote, which, uh, you know, was a little obviously way too vicious because he basically credited McCartney with only writing yesterday and nothing else. But uh, I, I just I just have to think that some of those I and I'm surprised there's nothing in the journals because he's obsessed with McCartney, but he's not like critiquing any of his work, like silly love songs or anything. Is that there's nothing in that in his diaries? No, that's no, no. You know, that's that's an interesting point, which, again, I never thought of it. I've just like been been dealing in terms of what was there, you know, what's known. And yeah, the only thing. He really, you know, wrote about McCartney with the things I was talking about, like, you know, what's Paul doing and, you know, his his jubilation at the uh, at the um, at the bust. Yeah, that was marijuana. But he did he did not critique Paul's songs, maybe because he didn't think they were worth critiquing. I don't know that you yeah. know it's hard to say what or just you know not necessary that uh, you know maybe he just thought the quality was obvious and everybody else was critiquing <laughs> them you know what what more could he say you know that, exactly. well uh, and, well and what you talked about the, i mean that was that was really just you know I, I just again i just had to cringe when i'm sitting there thinking of him you know being excited over his, his songwriting partner and bandmate being in prison but he has Yoko like casting a, a like a voodoo spell or something. Wasn't she like casting a spell or something? And he and he thought it worked, right? Yeah. Jo- well, I was talking about the occult and how deeply they got into the mm-hmm. occult, and one of the things was magic that Yoko and the tarot card reader John Green, Charlie Swan. He was kind of her gu- um, her guide or their guide to the occult world. That he went down to. Columbia in South America with uh, you know she, Yoko and Charlie Swan went to Columbia to m- meet Lena the Colombian witch and uh they pay, you know she paid Lena I think it was like $40,000 to teach her how to cast magic spells and uh John believed that the reason that McCartney got busted was because Yoko put a spell on him Wow, that's incredible. Uh, the, 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 lots of questions for you here. I, I, I'm not hitting you all, but uh, did did uh, did John create the Paul is Dead rumors a publicity ploy? Did John write privately about uh, his his? Apparently, you said he was obsessed with UFOs. Did he write about UFOs? Did he, he write about what? UFOs. Oh, UFOs. No, the only real mention of UFOs was that night that he was at May Pang's house. And yes, he yes. saw one. But no, he didn't get into writing about UFOs. It was just, you know, a, a brief, fragmentary mention. Okay. And by the way, what um, uh, what's the website that you're on with this chat room? I'd like to see that. Uh, well, it's Ocelli.com. It's uh, Chuck Ocelli, my producer. He has a network. Oh. Ocelli.com, and they have a chat room off it. You can go to live, uh, live chat. Ocelli.com, yeah. Yeah, let, let me see what's what's going on here. This sounds interesting. Yeah, there's like, of course, they're, they're, asking, your, they're asking a lot of crazy people. fans. Are, yeah, are right, well, they're right. asking they're asking a lot of political stuff too. That you know, I I don't I know that you'd be interested in, but the the oh, poll is. I might be interested. <laughs> uh, 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 do I click on the Donald Jeffrey show? Yeah, you can click on that. No, 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 no. Click click on the Listen Live tab, uh, but you're going to have to shut off the player because it'll probably start playing for you. But if you go to the Listen Live... uh, I can't 
do the listen live when I'm on the show. Not yeah, that. yeah. Right, I don't right. think you can get, but, yeah, they go to the chat at the same time. If you go think. on I that, mean, yeah, if you go on that page, though, that's where the chat room is. So you can click on that and just be in the chat room. If you go to that page, that's the way you get it. <laughs> listen live. I'm not seeing listen live. It's a black button that, or a gray button, depending on your browser. Gray, gray button. Oh, oh, okay. So I could I I could hit that and go to the chat room. Yeah, there's right. a chat room on that live? page. Yep. All right, let's let's see. Okay, All right, cool. I got it. Oh, that just popped up. Yeah, the Donald okay. Jeffrey show is. Uh, you go to the archive. You can get the archive of the podcast. Oh, oh, he, here yeah. it is. I, <laughs> yeah, okay. I got it. Okay. Yeah. So so. <laughs> so a lot on there. I'll, yeah. I'll leave it to you to guide me through. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've hit the ones I think that, you know were the most interesting. But uh, uh, you know, again, people, Lennon. Uh, I've done. I've had a couple authors on. Uh, I had Phil Strongman, the show, who wrote a, a book about the link of the Lennon assassination that I like very much, and he from England. And uh, I said I had Jude Kessler on several times. She doesn't really get into that, but she just gets into the minutia of Lennon's life. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me, but I, I just, I was, uh, you know, just kind of amazed at how uh, the, the, I guess, the viciousness of uh, Lennon's feelings towards McCarty, but still is the, is the evidence, because McCarty, since Lennon died, he's expressed his own bitterness about, like, Lennon being a martyr, and, uh, you know, he died, so, you know, of course, he's, you know, he's kind of said it in so many words, and, of course, he had to live on, so it's, he can't live up to that, so I think he's actually jealous of Lennon and death, perhaps, that he has this martyrdom, because he was assassinated, huh. but but how, how do you think he, uh, what, he, he didn't seem to have the same feelings, negative feelings toward John, didn't it seem to be kind of, mostly, it was like a one-way thing, that where Lennon was, was trying to break the relationship, or am I wrong with that? No, it's it does seem like uh, a one-way thing that McCartney wanted to get back together, and McCartney would have loved to get the Beatles together. But at this point, you know, what you were just saying before, I mean, you know, what does McCartney have to be bitter about now? I mean, he's <laughs> yeah, he's McCartney. He came off so yeah. well in the uh, in the Get Back movie. I mean, he just you know he's like the only one. You know, he's he's the one that you know had a real work ethic and he came into the studio and he wanted to work and do the album and you know, everybody else just you know seems to be goofing off or you know showing up when they feel like you know yeah. john did not come off particularly well through a lot of that movie though the scene with the rooftop concert you know you could see that they were a great band yeah yeah well dude he seems you know, i, I that's what I think, of, as I said, whether if you study the Beatles, they, they changed from John was the unquestioned leader of the Beatles in the early days. And if you listen to their songs, <clears throat> you know, typically if whoever sang lead, that was the primary songwriter for that song. It's usually they worked it. And if you look at all the early Beatles songs, most of them, including their hits, were John's. John dominated that early sound during Beatlemania. And it was only gradually speaking and then eventually especially uh towards the end of the period you're talking about the get back period uh by that time lennon was a background player he was just he had taken a back seat whether it was drugs or he was burned out or whatever and mccartney was very ambitious and prolific and he was pushing he was basically keeping the band together he was the one that was organized and uh right. so so I, I i think maybe you know lennon resented that a little bit but he you know he willingly he just kind of faded in the background somebody had to step up and it was it was paul 
Right, and that's that's certainly the way it came across in the film. Yeah, exactly. And then we have we have somebody here talking about the Beatles cartoons. Did John have thoughts on the Beatles cartoons? <laughs> I, I doubt if you researched that. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't recall him ever bringing that off. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's uh, somebody's talking about the Saturday Night Live offer, and, and I, I'm sure you remember that Lauren Michaels had that facetious offer where uh, uh-huh. he was. Gonna, well, they, yeah, he, it wasn't <laughs> facetious, but you know, yeah, yeah they were. Yeah. You know, they they were hanging out together that night. I think it was 1976, maybe. Yeah. And. Uh, um, they were watching the show, and you know, they were kind of like, hey, "Should we do this? Should we go down? Should we pick up three thousand dollars?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean that would have been crazy, but they didn't do it, and that was one of the last times they hung out. Yeah, that's why I, I found that because they, they were hanging out there, but that, I so I guess it didn't happen. The real rift didn't happen until after that, then because uh, they were they were hanging out. Boy, that would have been incredible if they. Uh... You know, if they had actually, they had actually gone down. Talk about television history. That would have been something. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at the the chat room. These some of these comments are. Do you think John and Brian were lovers at some point? I mean, that's like an old old <laughs> question. And I, you know, I I don't know for sure. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I I've read that John might have been bisexual. Uh, you know, he seems yes, to be, I've heard that. Yeah. You know, mostly heterosexual, but you know, he was yeah. a man with. Uh, a libido for sure, and yeah, he was—he yeah. was John. He was experimental. So who knows? I mean, you know, these things, you know, were not uh, in the diaries, and you know, he certainly didn't mention them to Fred. And uh, you know, I wasn't privy to everything John said, but uh, you know, I certainly know what was going on his his head. There's one here about his, <clears throat> his guilt with uh, his relationship with Julian, and yes. you know, yeah, he oh, he definitely, you know, he he had guilt. And uh, he thought about Julian, and uh, their relationship was frayed, and and that he thought that the only thing that Julian wanted from him was money, and uh, that seemed to be true, but he worried about Julian, you know, that Julian was getting into trouble, and Julian wasn't doing well in school, and yeah, he was only 16 years old, and they, you know, that Julian was, you know, riding around on dirt bikes, and he was going to get hurt. I mean, you know, just the normal worries a father might have for his son. Sure, and that, and but I mean, uh, as I understand, you wrote about that in the book. I don't think Cynthia was, was she was kind of struggling financially, so it it is kind of because Lennon from from Bob Wilson tells me, and he says to people that, and I've heard that he was he was really a pretty generous guy in real life, but more generous than McCartney, for instance, financially. But uh, he, why it's just kind of amazing that he would let his uh, his son and his ex wife struggle like that because he didn't. I guess later Julian got some money, but he had to fight for it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would think that if John uh, had lived, and you know, Julian became. A little older and more mature that yeah he would have um gotten some money but you know again it's just you know this is all spe- all, all speculation and that's not right. the way it happened but uh yeah you know that was uh a definite issue with like uh, his relationship with julian that you know he tried to repair it but he just you know it just seemed like uh it wasn't happening and you know there was always animosity between Julian uh, and Yoko. So that was a big part of the problem right there. 
So, so what did Lennon didn't write about politics? He wasn't really writing about UFOs. He wasn't writing about McCartney's uh, critiquing his music. So, but you had these prolific diaries. So you said it was mostly analyzing his dreams. I mean, what? Well, you know, there there were long periods where that was the case. But you know, he was. What did he write about? He wrote a lot about Sean. Uh, he wrote a lot about you know what he ate. It was just like you know, really his day to day thing. That, you know, he'd get up in the morning, he got up early in the morning, he'd note the time, you know, five, six o'clock, look out his window, which faced, you know, which, which faced east over Central Park, and uh, he would draw a picture of how the sun looked that day, if it was cloudy or it was bright, and uh, he'd write about food, he'd just, you know, he'd write about all the people moving through his, his life, the the servants. Uh, he'd write about his uh, his worries with uh, with 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 Apple Records. Uh, you know, he'd write about uh, you know he'd think about his aunt Mimi and write about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd you know write about the books he was reading, and you know he'd write that he was practicing yoga and you know he uh, he smoked weed and you know he was alone much of the time and. He was, uh, uh, you know, into solitary sex. I mean, you know, I wrote about that. Yeah, that 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 was boy. That's boy. That's <laughs> I don't I don't know what that means, but it's 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 kind of well. I guess you know maybe you figure <clears throat> how many you know he he probably went through a thousand women or more. I guess in Hamburg and in the early days of the Beatles, I would I would imagine. But that's uh, a lot of women. I mean, you know, a thousand. <laughs> think about that. That's a lot. Yeah, I I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm just guessing. They had they had an awful lot. I mean, I know they were. You know, as young guys, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, that's what that's what that's what rock stars do, isn't it? I hear, I don't know, but uh, it's kind of sad though. At the end, Yoko was not interested in sex anymore, and of course, she was uh, one of the many questionable, you know, things a lot of us, you know, because that's I loved Lennon, but boy, I did not like Yoko, and I just said, you know, he wrote so many great songs, but he had this stupid Yoko lyrics that ruined me. Oh, Yoko's a great song, except for it's called Oh Yoko. You know, it's just he just kind of it's kind of ruined it with that stuff. But she was much older than him, so maybe she had, uh, yeah, nine years older. Let's see, he was she was February born, February nineteen thirty three, and he was October yeah. nineteen forty one. Yeah, eight years older. Yeah, so that's. Uh, you know, you have to wonder, but I, obviously, I don't know, I guess uh, what kind of a, attraction there was there. But uh, regardless, he changed his name for it and everything else. So, But you you had, uh, <clears throat> did you have any dealings with uh, any experiences? Did, did you have any contact with Yoko's people while writing this book? Uh, not while writing the book. No, I was on Yoko's payroll for about six months back in like 1982. To 1983, and I had numerous meetings with her. Um, oh, yeah, she, she's uh, yeah, yeah. She's not my favorite person in the world. Uh, yeah, she could she could be charming. You know, she's not my friend. She's not my enemy. If uh, you know Yoko ever wants something from me, as has happened in the past, you know she knows that. Her lawyers will contact my lawyers and will, you know, work out whatever she might want from me. But, you know, I, uh, for quite some time now, she's wanted nothing from me and I want nothing from her. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think we're just very happy leaving each other alone. How, how did she feel? How did she feel about the, how did she, how did she feel about Nowhere Man? Uh, 
she had no choice but to accept, accept it that at the time Nowhere Man was first coming out her she needed her lawyers needed my testimony in a case and uh there was nothing was ever said to that effect but it was understood that you know if they needed my testimony uh i was not going to be a cooperative uh witness for them if they were going to give me a, a hard time with nowhere man and they didn't and i cooperated with them and they got what they wanted, and Nowhere Man came out, and uh, you know, we've had nothing to do with each other ever since then. How about uh, Sean or Julian? Did you have any contact with them? I met Sean when he was like really young. That <clears throat> um, I was working for Fred Seaman's uncle, Norman Seaman, and uh, they were putting on shows in Carnegie Hall. You know, Carnegie Recital Hall, which is like you know, a, a smaller hall a, attached to the main Carnegie Hall, and uh, I was writing comedy skits for for them. And uh, Sean would come to these performances, and uh, I met Sean then, and I met Sean when he was a little bit older, and uh, I was going to the Dakota all the time when I was when I was on the payroll there. So, uh, you know, I knew Sean when you know, he was a child, like, you know, f like five years old. Okay. Yeah, cause, and somebody here, obviously people, I, I don't know if he's read your book, because I didn't know until I read your book that Peter Boyle was such uh, so close to uh, to Len the Lennon and Yoko, because this guy says uh, he actually had John. John was his best man, Peter Boyle's best man at his wedding. Uh, was that in my book? I forgot. All no, it wasn't. I, the, yes, but it's, but it's based on what you said. Apparently, Peter Boyle was one of his closest friends, it seems like, well, in New York. Yeah, he was like, you know, John did not have friends, but mm -hmm. Peter Boyle was like the closest thing he had to a friend, that uh, he did not have friends because because he was John Lennon. It was, he understood that everybody wanted something from him, no matter mm -hmm. who. And that just got in the way of of having you know, any kind of real friendship. And, you know, he understood that uh, you know, Peter wanted something from him. And, you know, what Peter wanted was, you know, to be, you know, to be, be, be photographed with John and you know, sure. seen in restaurants together and, sure. you know, be known as John's friend. I mean, that's what Peter wanted. But, uh, you know, John didn't really appreciate that. And you had asked about Julian too. You know, yes, I I did meet Julian when mm -hmm. he was about seventeen years old. I was in London, and uh, you know, we spent some time there with Julian. And you know, I didn't really get to know him, but I got a sense of who Julian was. And <clears throat> you know, he was with all his uh, his people, his friends, his um, you know, his little gang of people, and. Uh, yeah, Julian was in a difficult position, you know, because mm -hmm. of uh, of the financial thing, and uh, hey, he was, you know, he was uh, a troubled kid. Yeah. Well, you you, de you describe a kind of a touching anecdote in the in the book where uh, there are these twin brothers, I forget their names, that are uh, there, and they they, they managed to get Len in the hallway and ask for his autograph, and uh, he he just hired them and put them on the payroll. Right, the Martello brothers, uh, Greg and Rich Martello. Yeah, that's uh, that's who they were, and yeah, they were yeah 
they were kids. They seemed like, you know, nice, friendly kids. One of them looked a little like George Harrison. And uh, they were just total Beatle freaks. No, and Leonard, there, there's a... I... That reminded me of like a video clip. It, it seemed kind of staged because, you know, it was all filmed. But I don't know if you've seen that. And I think it was one of the movie documentaries about Lennon. But uh, I, I guess at, at, at their uh, country estate or something, Lennon had with Yoko. But this guy comes and he's, he's, he seems like a homeless guy, but he loves the Beatles. And Lennon has a long conversations with him outside. Like, you know, what do you want from me? I don't know anything, you know, that kind of stuff. And. And then he invites him in to eat with him. Have you ever seen that? That so that reminded me of that when he he put uh, this know, guy's in the paper. I think that that does sound familiar. I've seen that. What film was that in? Imagine maybe. Yeah, yeah, might have been Imagine the documentary about that. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen that. Not recently. I certainly have a a dim memory of it. But uh, and John sometimes. You know, he liked beating people. Sometimes he liked it when fans came up with him and came up to him and recognized mm-hmm. him and, you know, asked for his autograph. And, you know, sometimes he couldn't stand it. It just depended on his mood. Yeah, he was very moody, right? Wasn't that his thing? He had wild mood he, swings? He was a moody guy. Yeah, he was, yeah. Just, he was just a moody guy. Hey, that sounds like a song. <laughs> just a moody guy. <laughs> he wrote something like So what... After, after writing it, after researching it, how how did your view of John Lennon as a person, as an artist, that change, if it changed at all? I never really had any illusions about John. And for like years before I seen you know, for two years before I saw his 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 diaries, I was hearing from Fred, his PA, you know, all the time about you know what John was doing and it was pretty clear to me that you know john was uh, a deeply flawed human being and uh you know the journals confirmed that he was a human being and he was flawed and you know because of just the way that all that money and all that success and all that fame distorts your personality that it just it really exacerbated his flaws and uh yeah, he was just, you know, living proof that, you know, money and fame are not going to solve your your problems. It's just going to put them under uh, a microscope. And, yeah, well, he, cer- he certainly was that. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, somebody I read somewhere that uh, Lenin showed signs of uh, being attracted to Reagan when he was running for president. Like he actually kind of liked him. Have you heard anything like that? I have heard things like that. You know, like, like I said, the only thing he said in his journals about Reagan was that he thought he was going to be shot. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, he did not express any admiration for him. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you know, John was uh, a Republican and he would have voted for Reagan. And yeah, I, yeah. I just, you know, I, I, I've seen no real <laughs> evidence to... Uh, to, to indicate that's true. Yeah, that did, certainly didn't fit his uh, his politics from before. But uh, yeah, so you have to wonder, guys, because he had just the fact that he was that he died right as he was emerging, and he, you know, a double fantasy just come out, starting over was a hit, and uh, you know, you have to wonder what the future would have held. Would he have cleaned up his act? Would he have come to his senses and left Yoko at some point? Uh, yeah, I, you have to <laughs> I don't think he would have ever 
left Yoko when Double Fantasy was released, he had cleaned up his act pretty much. I mean, it's not like, you know, he completely stopped smoking weed. But, uh, yeah, the, the image that they were putting forth, you know, was the, uh, you know, the, the, the family, you know, the, the, the nuclear family. And uh, yeah, it's not that there was a complete myth that there was, you know, at the center of that, there was an element of truth. And it was just, you know, wrapped in all these other things. And it just, they made it out to be more than it really was. And yeah, that's the image that they chose to project. And, uh, you know, that's the image that Yoko is still trying to project that, you know, John as uh, almost like, a Walt Disney character, this you know fuzzy beetle who uh, also a, a secular saint, when yeah he was just you know a, a, a flawed human being who had enormous problems that he was constantly grappling with. I w- one thing I I remember uh, that and it really stuck with me again. I, I have to admit I wasn't McCartney's biggest fan. I love Lennon, but I. I thought when they uh, first approached McCartney about Lennon dying, I'm sure you remember that, where he, he and he was criticized, said, oh, it's really a drag or something like that. It was just kind of casual dismissal. I mean, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think McCartney was just in a state of shock. Yeah. Because it, it came off very like, you know, he was like, he wasn't making a big deal about it. Yeah, he was just, you know, I think that that, that was you know, a completely normal reaction from somebody who was shocked and horrified. And I don't think there's, you know, any question that he was shocked yeah. and horrified. Yeah, he must have, because both him and I'm sure Harrison had his own issues to deal with because uh, he hadn't talked to him for a long time and was not going to be able to. I guess Ringo was the only one Lennon was getting along with at the time. Yeah, Ringo was the last Beatle he saw. That he, I think it was around Thanksgiving or sometime in November 1980, that Ringo and Barbara Bach were staying at the Plaza Hotel, and Lennon went to see him. And from my understanding, that uh, uh, Ringo had asked John to write some songs for Ringo's uh, next album, and John was going to do it. Which he had done before, yeah. Well, we have we have. I'm sorry, you hadn't finished. No, I said, again, that never came to be. Right. We we only have about a minute left, so I want to give you a chance to uh, promote anything you want to promote, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, my new book is coming out July. Uh, it's called A Brooklyn Memoir. Uh, it's available on Amazon for pre-order now. It's going to be my first book that um, is going to be an audio book. Uh, anything you want to know about me or communicate with me, I'm always interested in hearing from people who have read my books or want to read my books. Um, the best way to do that is to go to my website, robertrosennyc.com, and uh, you know, everything you want to know about me is there. You know, All my books, uh, all ways to communicate with me, to hook up with me on Twitter, Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. And like I say, I'm you know, always happy to hear from people, and I'm especially happy to hear from people who've read my books. <laughs> Those are the best kind, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're the good ones. That's right. Well, Robert Rosen, thanks so much for for being with us. It's a fascinating book, a fascinating look at John Lennon, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. So we'll be right back after these words. 
a time of fake news, fake politicians, and fake fiat currency, it's getting harder to find the genuine article. That's why when it comes to precious metals, I call the team I can trust. This is David Knight for my friends at Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Proudly veteran-owned and operated, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange is your home for gold and silver coins, bullion, jewelry, and more. Prices and inventory are updated daily, so you get the most competitive possible pricing. And when it's time to sell your gold and silver items, they pay top dollar. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange also accepts and deals in Bitcoin. Call or text the owner, Tony Arterburn, today at 888-667-1836. That's 888-667-1836. Or just go to wisewolf.gold. From bullion to Bitcoin, Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Wise Wolf Gold and Silver Exchange. Hi there, this is John Barber, and you're listening to the most informed man in America, my friend, fellow author, and raconteur, the great Donald Jeffries Show. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. Go ahead, caller. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination built into her claims? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed, if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Wall Street, Street Window. Gold. Silver. The stock market. Wall Street Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. Wall Street Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge wallstreetwindow.com go there now go there now go there now every time i put it on my face i'm able to breathe just a little bit deeper 
What are people saying about MyTrueEssence.net? I'm going to tell you something serious, man. I just want to tell you, listeners, I bought some uh, some of that modifilin from uh, Christy, and she gave me she got, she got made me up some of this emu oil mixed with some other stuff. I don't know what's in it, but I like the way it smelled. And I uh, started putting it on, rub, rubbing it on my foot, rubbing it on my knee, and, like, the second day, I didn't, you know, I, I just noticed it. I'm walking around. I'm like, damn, my knee is loose. I can tell you that that, that oil you gave me helped me with my carpal and my shoulder problem. And if it wasn't, I couldn't even, I, I wouldn't be working. My ankles sort of really be pesky and bother me. And I'm telling you, the pain just went away. Essential oils rule. And when I put that on, it's just, it's like my skin came alive. MyTrueEssence.net Ocelli.com Revelation through conversation. Hi, this is Ron Paul. You're listening to The Donald Jeffrey Show. You are listening to The Donald Jeffrey's Show. And welcome back to The Donald Jeffrey Show. I never get tired of hearing... Ron Paul saying you're listening to the Donald Jeffrey Show, or John Barber, or Cindy Sheehan, or Susan Olson. Loved it. It's very gratified that those people agreed to to record a little uh, promo. So we're going to open the phone lines for this hour. Uh, my producer Chuck Ocelli is opening up. You can call 319-527-5016. You know, guys, know I love to get the phone calls. So 319-527-5016. Talk about whatever's on your mind. Um, it's great to have Chris back in the chat room. He keeps it going, obviously. And um, lots of those questions up. I think, you know, he was not. Uh, yeah, 319-527-5016. Uh, Bob Rosen, great guy. But uh, I don't think he was too predisposed to thinking there was necessarily a conspiracy, as you can tell in, the, in this death. So we kind of take what we can get from it. But uh, very interesting stuff. So, uh, as I noted, I'm still trying to get Laura Rubin on the show, and she was uh, uh, an actress and someone who hung around Andy Warhol's group, so uh, Lou Reed and those people, after she met Jackie Kennedy, I don't know if she might have, because I think she was part of that group, but still going to try to get her on the show, uh, hopefully in a couple weeks. Next week, I have Aaron Elizabeth, I have to check and make sure I set that up a long time ago in advance, uh, has written some really good stuff, has a huge following, uh, especially about the uh, <clears throat> the pandemic and things like that. So uh, that'll be a good discussion. A very attractive lady who has a, a, <clears throat> a really big following. She had, I think she was, she was canceled from YouTube or Inst I think Instagram, she had a million followers or something. So uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of big people in this alternative world. You know, everybody hasn't heard of them all. I find out new ones every day and like, it's like, <clears throat> wow, they have a million followers. Wow. How does that work? But uh, so obviously there's a lot of people out there searching for alternative information. So we're trying to give it to them. And uh, if you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if you don't follow me on, on Substack, please do so. Uh, I finally went for the pay option. People have been telling me I should do that so I can make a little money. You know, I, I get paid. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. As I said many times, I'm living my dream. But I am paid like a McDonald's worker, basically doing it. So I'd like to have a little bit more money. So 
uh, Substack, uh, a lot of the writers that get paid, I have, I now have a lot of subscribers and I'm well past the threshold, they say, where you should start trying to go for a pay option. So very gratified this week that I did it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a good number of paid subscriptions, but I'm still offering everything for free because that's kind of the populist way. You know, I don't feel right about having just pay stuff and you know it's too complicated to figure that out so everything's out there for free so uh, you go to donaldjeffries.media or donaldjeffriessubstack.com uh, i protest is uh, is what i call that there like i call my original radio show and uh you can uh, read all my stuff there my various rants and uh, become a subscriber and if you feel like being a paid subscriber the options are there it's not much and it certainly would be greatly appreciated so uh Let's see what's in the news. Uh, well, of course, we still have the the Ukraine, Russia, Russia, Russia stuff, and uh, I just want you know any any. I doubt very many people that are, that are listening to me or buying the uh, <laughs> the Vladimir Zelensky uh, is some kind of great hero for you. Folks. You don't know his background. The guy's a comedian. He was a uh, and he was really a lurid performer. You know, one of his great. Uh, talents and you can go see the video out there is playing the piano with his penis now i'll give you that's a talent but uh <laughs> it's not i don't know it, it just doesn't seem uh classy enough to be leading uh, <clears throat> an allegedly free country and he also uh, notoriously one of his roles was on the show he he played that show okay his tv show is now on netflix there you go and on that tv show i believe that's where he they, he first played the character of the president of the Ukraine. So you talk about, you know, life imitating art. So now that's what he's doing now. But uh, I don't even understand the, uh, this, this Ukraine's, I mean, this is, this is beyond belief because I, I can't even figure it out geopolitically because typically our foreign policy is run completely uh, by uh, Israeli interests. You know, ever since the neocons took over under Reagan in the eighties, We've never looked back, and our foreign policy can pretty much, you know, it's been focused on the Middle East because that's where Israeli interests lie. So typically, uh, it's whatever is in Israel's best interest. That's how our Democrats and Republicans are duopoly proceeds. That's what they do. And uh, but in this case, I really don't, I, I don't quite understand uh, why Israel has. Uh, would have more of a rooting interest in the Ukraine than I, I don't understand it at all. So it doesn't seem to have the typical Ziocon, uh, you know, agenda there. But it, that is what is happening when you're seeing all this this Ukraine flag waving. And again, just look at the look at what this guy did the other day. He it literally bought him no bad publicity at all to just declare all other parties all his up and unlike America, unlike America, which you know is limited to these two. Tweedledum and Tweedledee parties that we've had to choose from forever. Other countries have multiple parties to choose from, and they really do have more of a choice. Uh, and in Ukraine, they had several parties. And uh, Zelensky, the great democratic hero, just uh, cavalierly just banned them all. And he also consolidated all media into one uh, network. Now we, you know, we might as well do that as well here because we typically really just have one, one, uh, you know, narrative that goes out all the time. But I found it ironic that it's still this is still the mantra. We're there to defend democracy or protect democracy, whatever it is. Uh, Ukraine has was is not a democracy, and if you had any doubts about it, the fact that this guy you're worshiping is some kind of leader of the free world, this this cool crusader, 
uh, he just shut down all his opposition the other day. So I, I don't know what that is, but I don't think it fits into a democracy. So, but again, this is uh, it's almost like mask wearing. Uh, the people that are clinging to Ukraine, boy, they, they just, and, you know, the, the program is working really good. Uh, Chris says, would you ever consider interviewing Squeaky Fromm or Sharon Tate's sister? Sure, I would. And I'm sure maybe you have their contact info, Chris, because you have everything. Jim Jones' son, wow, that would be interesting. Chuck said, Jim Jones, it's hard for me to get a hold of, never had that in my show, okay. Um, sure, if you have contact info, I'll try. You know, I'm trying right now, I'm really trying to get... Uh, <clears throat> one of Dorothy Kilgallen's kids because I want to find out what the deal is with Jim Kilgallen, which was her father. And he lived to be like 94 or 96 or something. So he was, he was alive for decades after she was murdered. And uh, supposedly what I felt, somebody had sent me, and I don't know if it was Chris or Bob Wilson or who originally Peter Seacosh, one of you guys sent me something originally that uh, about how he contacted the, uh, the senior Kilgallen contacted the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He was alive and well then. And uh, it had to do something with uh, Dorothy's papers and a safe or something. I, I can't find that for the life of me. All I can find about uh, Jim Colgallon is that he uh, he never discussed Dorothy's death and wouldn't discuss the assassination. So, But he did. There is something out there that admits he contacted Lewis Stokes, the House Select Committee on Assassination, uh, but it was basically to tell him you know, a bunch of newspaper clippings, one of which, I, you know, very uh, interestingly enough, was how the uh, employees at the Regency Hotel, which is where Dorothy Kilgallen was last seen alive, uh, were were instructed by uh, their employer not to not to talk to Lee Israel, the controversial. Well, I wish she was alive, the controversial author of Kilgallen that wrote about it. Uh, and a lot of people were in a Kilgallen. Uh, Dorothy's dad wouldn't talk to her either. So uh, if you can find that, boy, that's what I – but I, I was able to find what I think is her daughter. I left the message. She hasn't called back. Uh, one of the sons, I had some number. It was disconnected. Typically what happens when people like Chris and Peter and, and Bob Wilson uh, get these contact info, info for me or if I find it myself – 90, probably 95% of the time, the numbers that are out there listed in 411.com or the public records, uh, when you call, the, the number's been disconnected. And I find that very curious. You know, what are the odds of that? Uh, <clears throat> at any rate, so um, that's the kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm looking at, so I, I love to talk to people like that <clears throat> and uh, certainly would be very interested in squeaky from squeaky from is a very i think wasn't squeaky from also um she was very popular in high school wasn't she connected to phil hartman i want to say or some was well, some celebrity I, i'm sure chris knows i can't remember what was it it was uh um gosh i can't remember but it was uh very uh a very interesting connection, I know that. But uh, yeah, certainly Sharon Tate's sister would be. Uh, <clears throat> well, although I don't, I don't know Sharon Tate's sister, I think probably. I don't. She it's unless Chris or anybody knows different. I think she probably buys into the establishment narrative. I don't know what happened there, but certainly what you know the the, the Tate Labianca murders. A lot of dubious questions there. I think that. Uh, uh, and we're having the Jim Jones. I said, I don't, I don't know that much about that. Now, of course, 
my my uh, my mentor Mark Lane was connected there. And that's why a lot of people, um, a lot of people uh, who distrust Lane and claim he's a CIA agent, disloyal, which, which they pretty much claim about every high-profile clinic of the Warren Commission. Abs- everyone, I've not heard one that they didn't think that about. But uh, most of the reason they think that about Lane is because of his connection to Jim Jones and the fact that he got away unscathed and he was Jim Jones' attorney. Um, you know, that would have been interesting to ask him about that. Uh, okay, Chris, it was you. He said, I sent it. Jim Cogallon sent a scrapbook of Dorothy's JFK articles to a member of the HSCA, Phil Hartman dated. There you go, Phil Hartman dated from. Well, you're, you're on top of things, Chris. <clears throat> I need to have you on the show sometimes, says <laughs> Chris. That's what I need. I just let you go with like, you, you are a wealth of information. You should be writing your own books. Um, Okay, because I, I heard uh, if you have a source that said about Kilgallen, a scrapbook of Dorothy, Dorothy's JFK articles, I would love that because I, I found a reference to him sending articles to Lewis Stokes. But at least in the article, it had nothing about anything about Dorothy's JFK articles. It was articles kind of about things. And one of them said it was the, the, the employees of the Regency Hotel were been instructed not to talk to Lee Israel. So... Um, And uh, so uh, Chuck did a Laura Cole did a show and two other survivors confirmed that Jones Jr. was supposed to pass along orders to Jones people in California. Yeah, I, that's you, Chris. We certainly did. He's he's the one. He's you know he sent me Seymour Hersh's number. He answered and I talked to him. Wasn't very forthcoming. <laughs> Basically said you know so I wanted to know and you know with uh, with Hunter Lap- Biden's laptop in the news again. Uh, what Seymour Hersh said years ago, and I talked about this in Hidden History, uh, <clears throat> that uh, Seymour Hersh claimed, and he's claimed it publicly, that there are videotapes out there of U.S. troops, our boys, you know, <laughs> support the troops, raping Iraqi boys in front of their screaming mothers. Now, uh, that's the kind of thing, I mean, not that anybody would want to watch that. But that's the kind of thing that could really wake up millions because that's something that you can't, uh, <clears throat> you know, that you can't. How do you deny that? But he claims, oh, it's going to come out. Well, it's the last we heard. That's what I wanted to ask him about. And he just basically said, well, uh, wait for my next book to come out or something. Which I said, OK. I mean, he was, he was OK. He was nice, but <clears throat> he wouldn't talk. Uh, Bill McVeigh, that's Timothy McVeigh's father. He actually did. Uh Answer the phone. Again, all this is from Chris. Chris got me that. He got me Todd Bergen's contact in from the JFK Jr. And uh, very uh, interesting exchange of emails. I'll have all that, the details in Hidden History 3. Um, Citizen GX said Phil Hartman, a really bad choice in women, I'll say. Squeaky from. <laughs> squeaky from. <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, Chuck is going to be talking about Hunter's laptop next hour with Ed. Oh, you got Ed? Yeah, tell, say hello to Ed for me. I've been on Ed's show several times and uh, several times. Really interesting guy, private investigator. Has, has, he has a bunch of great contacts himself. I think he, was, he worked on the OJ case and uh, lots of other. And he always, like, as we mentioned, he always seems, he reminds me a little bit of John Barber. He always seems to be on the brink of like getting a big show. And then, I don't know, something seems to fall fall out. But that's, you know, that's the way it is and. In entertainment, a little bit of contact I've had with people out there in Hollywood and, and in the entertainment business. Uh, that there's a lot of that, 
you know, where they get you excited and you think, wow, you know, there, there's something that makes you think, hey, I, you know, this is really great. Somebody's going to do that. And always you never hear anything else or it just falls through or something. So that's that's I think that's just the way they do business out there. So uh, all my best to Ed. He's uh, <clears throat> he was one probably one. Not one of the first, but I interviewed with him early on. He was one of the ones I found, one of the talk show hosts in this alternative world. I I found that about early on after writing Hidden History. But so Hunter's laptop comes in. The reason I think that's significant is because now we now we're here in the New York Times, and you know I I wrote myself. I wrote. And I'll be writing another story for the American Free Press about. It. I wrote tons of stories about. They would always assign me the uh, the Ukraine stuff with the Bidens and Hunter's laptops. I wrote a lot of stories on, on that for American Free Press. So, you know, for for anyone to think that this wasn't real or something, and again, they, these I just came out today. They've now acknowledged what. You know, we were writing about a couple of years ago that uh, <clears throat> that there is there are nude or semi-nude inappropriate pictures of Hunter Biden's 14-year-old niece on the laptop. Now they haven't admitted the the rape of the 10-year-old Chinese girl because that's what I heard early on that he that there's that he's raping a 10-year-old Chinese girl. Now I have no idea if that's true. I'm just telling you what that's what they some people claim are on there. But these are the same people that claimed that Hunter Biden's niece was on there inappropriately. And now the mainstream media is admitting it right after they admitted that because they basically were admitting that not admitting that this laptop existed or whatever. Now they've kind of strangely admitted it. Uh, it, uh, it so I, I really don't know what the reason is for that, but. If, again, much like uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop, which is kind of being in front, that's the one where, you know, the allegations are, again, from the conspiracy world. Are they real? I don't know. That, you know, Hillary Clinton is doing some really horrible things to a little kid or little kids on that laptop, uh, Weiner's laptop. So uh, where that where did that go? Nobody got to see it. Hunter Biden's uh, laptop made the news more because, you know, somebody like even Rudy Giuliani, who, by the way, where is Rudy Giuliani? <laughs> he must be with Anthony Fauci somewhere. He's kind of disappeared. And uh, this is a guy who was a high-profile guy. He, he was, you know, right in the middle of the 9-11 cover-up. Uh, but I I think he got sucked in a little bit into Donald Trump's world. And maybe he, uh, you know, maybe he actually thought he was doing some good. And, of course, Trump dropped him like a hot potato, like he does everybody. You know, <laughs> which uh, I think he wouldn't, he didn't even pay uh, Giuliani for his legal services, which is, you know, Trump's modus operandi. That's what he does. So I don't know where Rudy is, but... Uh, Rudy was the one that was really talking about uh, uh, what was on that laptop. And uh, so I'm sure wherever he is, he's maybe saying, oh, I told you, you know, I don't know. But I doubt very seriously that, that this will go anywhere because the end for, for the right wingers out there who have hopes that, that like Hunter Biden, you know, I, you know, Hunter Biden is the president's son. They could conceivably sacrifice somebody at that level, you know, to, to prosecution, but typically they just don't prosecute anybody. And that's, that's, you know, the biggest problem in this country. I talked about it on, on Jeff Rents Monday night. And uh, I've, you know, I've always said for a long time that um, the uh, the biggest problem in America, I thought, you know, for a long time was the disparity of wealth and the fact that half the country has nothing. And it's obviously still incredibly important. But I think that the number one problem now is the corruption, the systemic corruption from top to bottom and the fact that so many high crimes are going on, so much corruption, and it's never, ever punished. And you just can't continue like that. And I'm talking about everywhere. You look at this guy, uh, Deshaun Watson, if you follow the NFL. This is a guy who's uh, 
not even that great of a quarterback. I mean, he's not, you know, he's no Tom Brady, but uh, he's shown potential. But, um, and maybe he'll be great. I don't know. But I, I don't think he's, you know, top tier by any means. But he was, he was uh, accused by 22 different women that worked at different massage parlors. All the same, kind of like the Bill Cosby thing. Very, very similar accusations. Nothing happened for a year. He was he, he was put on inactive status by the Houston Texans, the team he's playing with to their credit that they did that. But uh, once it went to the grand jury, you know, they say a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Well, they can never indict anybody famous, rich or famous. They, they may indict ham sandwiches, but not rich ham sandwiches. Uh, so they failed to indict. So he's uh, the NFL team's gotten a bidding war over this guy. He was just given $230 million contract, the largest guaranteed contract in the history of the NFL, bigger than Tom Brady, any of the superstars that ever played. Uh, this is outrageous, absolutely outrageous. And uh, so, again, they, he, nothing will happen to this guy, and he's, he, he's, you know, he's a football player. But he's a high-profile athlete, has already accumulated millions. He's above the law. So Hunter Biden, son of the president of the United States, Nothing's going to happen. Hillary Clinton, sorry, guys. You're not going to get to see the, the orange jumpsuit perp walk. And the other side, you're not going to see Donald Trump do it either. It's just this is the problem is that you can't have a society. Why would any, why should anyone respect the laws? No one should respect the law because it's it's outrageous the way people that are obviously committing crimes all the time. And Hillary Clinton destroyed a hard drive with a sledgehammer admitted to me. It's like, you know, just the 30,000 emails or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're all above the law. So um, be interesting to see if that ever comes out. And uh, Chris's boy, Chris, yeah, you, told, you sent me Oliver North. Not that interesting. Marvin Bush and Larry Clasitas' widow, I would like to talk with the Clasitas family. I know he's not going to talk because he got all upset. And if you don't know who Lori Clasitas was, she was the young intern that was found dead with a head wound in then-Congressman Joe Scarborough's office. Now, this guy now hosts one of the most uh, – absurd talk shows out there with uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski's uh, daughter, who I guess is his wife now, uh, Mira, Mira Brzezinski or whatever her name is. Uh, but they hosted together Morning Joe, and it's just, you know, it's, it's about as putrid as it gets. It's kind of, a, you know, almost at the view level of unwatchability. But um, this guy, again, got away, got away with murder. He joked about it later. I mean, this guy, there's no, I tried to, when I put, I wrote about it in history, Tried to do more investigation on it. Couldn't get anywhere. Clasitas is a very unusual name. There are family members out there. You can't get through. To, and I'm not going to call his. I would be, I think, have better luck with a sister or something. And I, I did track the sister down. She's a principal of some school. And I I, I, I was probably you too, Chris. But I uh, left a message for her. Never called me back, obviously. Uh, uh, wrestler Billy Jack Preston, absolutely. I have more on that. I actually talked to a couple people about him. They don't trust him. But he, I don't know. He apparently still disappeared. Um, uh, yes, Orville Nix's granddaughter. And, I, and I'm friends with her, Gail Nix Jackson. And, uh, she, um, she's got a, a pretty bad case of Trump derangement syndrome. So, uh, she's one of several people that just kind of, uh, are, are, don't trust me because Roger Stone's name is on the hidden history in my best selling book. Uh, uh, he wrote the forward to the paperback. Nothing I can do about that folks. Publisher asked them to do it. At the time I was excited about it. um, Carol Derek Cooper's widow. Yeah, boy, that, that Carl Derek Cooper's widow. Yeah, you did. That's right. Yes. Uh, Rudy and Bernie Carrick have photos with the Q. Yes, they do. Rudy and, and, and Bernie Carrick have photos with the QAnon shaman. 
That's very interesting. Oh, I didn't. Lori Closudis' widow is her husband's dead. I didn't know that. I did check into that. Um, let's see. Do we have a caller here? Hold on. Okay, we have a caller. You're on the air, caller. Hello. Oh, DJ. Oh, yeah. DJ, yes. It's JJ. Hey, how you doing? A long time no uh, talk, so I just want to tell you, you've had a lot of good guests on lately. I really like that John Barber show you did a couple weeks ago. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, my my other show I've been, because, you know, uh, between Chuck and me, we took a little bit of time off there, and so we're, we're coming back now stronger, so I haven't had as much uh, on this show. But, yeah, I appreciate that. So you're listening to the other one, yeah. I've, and I just to let you know... Um, I don't know how much longer I'll be on YouTube, but uh, the last two shows I did on iProtest, because I live stream over there on YouTube, YouTube uh, removed both of them for medical misinformation. So uh, they found out who I am now, I guess. So I don't think I'm long for uh, YouTube. So I won't be able to live stream this Friday on YouTube anyhow. So uh, and that's uh, the most where I get the most views over there. On, on, uh, but uh, so, yeah, it is what it is. But it's uh, the censorship is ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, your guest last week was interesting. Uh, I missed, like, the first 10 minutes of the show, but it sounded like uh, she's a, basically a targeted individual, right? Uh, la- oh, yes, yes. Yeah, last week was Carolyn, yeah. And Carolyn Rose Goeda, um incredible story. You know, just uh, and again, kind of hard to document. So I'm still trying to focus. I want to write about it in more, even more detail in Hidden History Three than I'm right now. But um, the problem is, she's having a hard time finding anybody that corroborated. People are scared. Some of them have died. And um, but you know, this is the kind of corruption we face because her corruption was at the municipal level, the local level, and it's just amazing what she went through having her home demolished yeah. and uh, all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad you listened to that. Yeah. I hope, I hope everyone did. Oh, those, and they, they, I can't remember. Did they, was she the one, did they hurt, shoot her dogs? They killed her cats. Yeah. And I think they shot her dog too. I think. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah, so there needs to be some kind of national law passed on that. I mean, cops don't have the sense to know not to be murdering people's pets. Right. I guess we'll have to commit pen, pen to paper to explain it to them. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's uh, how many of those cops gone by wild videos and stories do you hear about? Uh, it's it's a real thing with them shooting dogs. They've done it many, many times. And it's you oh, know, they, know. They, yeah, yeah. I have a pit bull, and I'm always worried about the way people react to him, even though he's just a big goofball. Oh, yeah, especially a pit bull. You know they're going to be, because they, they feel threatened about, you know, <laughs> threatened by a French poodle. So, uh, you know, they're they're not going to, uh, yeah, they're not going to say, and it's happened way too many times. And again, you know, if people don't care about them, uh, all the uh, people they've shot in the back and everything, they're certainly not going to care if they shoot a dog, and they've shot a lot of dogs. Oh, I don't know, Don. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of people out there that love animals a lot more than people. They are. You're right. That's it. When I was talking about Deshaun Watson, you remember M- Michael Vick uh, 
is really one of the few high-profile yeah. athletes who caught hell because of the dog thing. I don't think he would have gotten in as much trouble if he'd uh, raped 22 women like Deshaun Watson is accused of. Exactly. That Vic, what did he do? He did like five years or something, didn't he? Yes, well, I don't know if it was quite that long, but he... The fact he was punished at all is was amazing to me because that just doesn't happen to these guys. They're above the law. Right. Well, they think they are until they're not. Yeah, well, exactly. He found out, but, you know, you, he, uh, I guess he got the animal rights people uh, in an uproar. He, he made the wrong group upset. You don't mess with PETA. No, no, you don't mess with them. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, well, I'm glad you're listening to... Uh, Show and hopefully uh, you know have some good guests uh, going forward here. I'm trying very picky with who I ask. Um, Chris asked what I consider having Opperman or Rents as guests. You know, people ask me. Bob Wilson asked me about Rents all the time. I love being on Jeff Rents' show. I just don't know how he would do a- as a guest. And I don't know about Opperman either. I don't know. Opperman might be interesting, I guess. But that's the one reason. Like Leno Sonic is a perfect. Leno Sonic is a great host. But as a guest, he kind of, you know, and, and Chuck kind of, I think, vouch for that. He kind of holds back he a little bit. Tell. He doesn't want to be there. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> want to be a guest. I, yeah, he doesn't say because if be the host. Yeah, if you saw the show I did, um, well, it hasn't come out yet. John Barber's making movies where him, Len and I were his guests. I mean, you could see, I mean, Len just, when the microphone goes to him, he just, he didn't have a whole lot to say. He he prefers, I think, to be on the other end of the microphone where he's asking the questions. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, well, I had a, a thought on that big laptop story there. Mm-hmm. Well, the bigger issues, all the crimes there, the Bidens have been up to. Yeah. Uh, oh, Yeah. I, where, where there may be some so-called justice, I have to think, you know, sure, Biden's stupid, he's dense, he's probably got Alzheimer's, but surely he has figured out by now that all this crap that fell down on Trump, all this Russia stuff was meant for him. Hillary had all this stuff. She was getting set up to drop it on Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's head in case he tried to run against her in 2016 because he was the sitting vice president. And so presumably most people thought he was going to try for the nomination. And, you know, and if, so if Joe Biden realizes, hey, dummy, you're a sitting president. This woman wanted to destroy you. Think about that. Let that sink in, Joe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll see. I don't know, uh, you know, what plans they have, because I think they're, uh, uh, everybody kind of assumed when Biden got in there that he might not be long for office, but Kamala Harris is just, it's maybe even worse than Biden. I mean, with her, her giggling and just her superficial, I mean, just her explanation of Ukraine. <laughs> you see, Ukraine's a country, and you're, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's really embarrassing. So uh, I don't, I don't know what they have planned, man. I, I don't. I don't predict anything. And uh, uh, Chris has asked me, "Is the next talking movies the conspiracy theme?" That's the one we just filmed. I don't think he's put it out there yet, but that's the one I'm talking about, where Len was on it as well. 
And Chuck, I did not mean to uh, cut. I, I love Ed Apperman, and uh, I don't. I just don't. I, I had to listen to how he was the guest. Maybe he was great. And uh, Len is great. You know, I love Len too. I'm just saying that uh, I think that uh, you know, as as far as Len, no, at least, I think he, he did fine. I enjoyed listening to his shows. It's just uh, you could just I, I could just tell just because I listen to these things. I just know that. You could just tell he's used to being the host, not the not the interviewee. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Some people, I mean, I uh, I'm okay either way. I mean, I I probably prefer being the guest to be the truth to tell you the truth. But um, you know, I, I I I'm doing okay on this end too. I think because I I like to talk. So uh, either way, it's all right. But um, anything else on your mind? No, that's about it. Good job. Keep up the good work. Keep up. Well, I appreciate it, Jimmy Jean. Thanks, uh, thanks for calling, and uh, thanks for listening. Yep. Bye. Take care. Um, Chris says, "Didn't Elliot Fitzer have a laptop?" Yeah, I don't know. I get, I got him mixed up with this. Um, uh, what's his name? Wiener. Maybe he did. I don't know. It's, it's possible. I. I uh, Hmm. I don't know, but um, so at any rate, so this this is uh, the um, so the laptop situation that seems to be you know being the, the big story now that everybody wants to uh, to talk about and uh, in the alternative field anyway. But it's breaking through this Ukraine Russia thing. I mean that is just uh, it's mind boggling to me. That uh, that we've allowed ourselves to, and you you have the, if you had any, you know, doubts about the popularity of war on the left, I mean, just listen to these so-called liberals, and uh, of course you have the conservatives too. There was these, you know, the uh, neocons like Lindsey Graham and Adam Kinzinger, people like that, who are still criticizing Biden. And I think, if, if anything, what, what's hilarious is that the, these guys don't think Biden's. They think he's like a big wimp. It's like you know, why are you know why don't they? I think they want him to, to to start bombing Russia. I don't know what they want. So it's it's uh, there's very little sanity out there, and you have people like uh, the the women on the no the, the Keith Olbermann, who's completely deranged now, absolutely belongs in a padded room somewhere. Uh, you know, saying that the military should be detaining people like Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard, and really that's all. That's the best that you have in terms of anti-war voices that are in the establishment that have any kind of platform in the establishment media. I haven't seen anyone on the left outside of Tulsi Gabbard, not one person that is uh, other. You know, people like my friend Cindy Sheehan, people like that, Cynthia McKinney. But um, you know, to, for people that have uh, you know, for, for no voices against the against this madness, apparently everybody's cool for World War III, and a lot of people are cool with nuclear weapons. I I, I just don't understand it. Um, Oh yes, Chris is talking about. I I saw that night. I saw that video. Are you the one that sent that to me, Chris? I, and if you've seen it, man, ah, uh, maybe Chris can put the link up if you, if you did send it. John Podesta's. Uh, it is a really disturbing video, and I don't know that it's Podesta. It sounds like his voice, but you can't tell from the video. But there is a little boy screaming, and those screams are real, and they're blood curling. I mean, they're they're terrifying to listen to that. 
and uh, you know to hear what Podesta or whoever it is saying, you know, you know, just who's your daddy? And it just unbelievable. What are you going to call me? I mean, this is you can see why they cut why they don't let this stuff come out because they're if normal people see it, they're going to the game's over. They're going to realize, okay, wait a minute, you know, these people can't pretend that they're they're that they they're they're not evil. Uh, that's Peter Seacoss. He's just tuning in now. Ah, no problem, Peter. I I just uh, always appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're sending me to. Peter's been sending me a lot of good stuff too on uh, Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson and all kinds of cool stuff. And Joe McCarthy, uh, lots of good stuff for Hidden History 3. Between uh, Peter and Chris Graves and Bob Wilson, uh, I don't have to search for too much research. I just put it together. I mean, because these guys are great, and I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, the interesting guess. So you, you, I guess you missed the first part. That was, it was, we we're talking about from Robert Rosen, author about uh, Nowhere Man, The Final Days of John Lennon. So it was about John Lennon. So interesting stuff, if you're interested in Lennon. But uh, now I'm just kind of going over the uh, the news, and as usual, it's it's all bad. And uh, I'm writing an article this week for American Free Press on the uh, the death rate, you know, going up forty percent. And just uh, it's amazing, you know, to read that. I mean, it's not only the death rate has gone up forty percent from eighteen to sixty four, which again is unprecedented. This is something the world has never seen, never seen. Uh, but not only that, but you have the millennial group. Ages, uh, whatever it is, 20, 20 to four, 25 to 40 or whatever they claim it is. The millennial group is uh, they have an 84 percent mortality rate above what should be uh, expected. You know, that, 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 that it, it shouldn't be there, in other words. I mean, that's just amazing. So you combine those two things and it's like, what the hell is going on? I mean, this is just amazing. Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson was an embarrassing president. So he, well, yeah, just very. Uh, he really set the template for a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Checks has a lot of suicides. Yeah, absolutely. Suicide rate is through the roof, but it gets into the vaccine stuff too. You know how many people have actually died from the vaccine? Because even if you buy all these fake stats, you know, for for COVID, even if you buy their absurd official stats, doesn't come close to explain, explaining that many excess deaths. Something very bizarre is going on. The insurance industry is definitely upset, and they should be because they're having to pay out, you know, uh, way more than they should have, or that they want to, and uh, they want to know what's going on. I don't blame them. And uh, just very, very frightening stuff. Uh, Chris says some people think the late movie producer Steve Bing, who of course jumped or was pushed off or fell <laughs> from a high-rise building, which happens all too often in the entertainment world and politics, and he crossed over. He was a friend of Bill, friend of Clinton's, uh, had something to do with the rumored Hillary snuff film, Frazzle Drip on the Dark West. He, you know more than I do. I mean, there's that's that, that the rumor is that there. I mean, again, who knows? I mean. It's even hard for me to believe that there's a film out there of Hillary killing a child and snuff film on on uh, the dark web. Chris even knows the name of it, Trazerit. But I mean, it's this is just terrifying stuff. But uh, Steve Bing had something to do with it. Well, that wouldn't surprise me. And he's, uh, he, you know, he was married. God, what's the name of that actress? God, I can't think of her now. He was married to a, a gorgeous actress who's, but she's uh, she's got a she's not a nice person. Let's put it that way. Hung out with mobsters. Uh, supposedly Hillary's friend Huma, yeah, Huma Avalon, 
Anthony Weiner's wife accompanied Hillary in the video. Supposedly, the Hillary and Podesta videos are on Weiner's and Biden's laptops. Well, wouldn't that be sad? And of course, the people would say, "Why would you film this?" Well, there it is. There, there at the there's uh, Chris uh, put them. So, anybody want to click on that video? It's disturbing stuff. You don't see anything, but just hearing the child screaming is amazing. And can't prove it's him. You know, the voice is you know sounds like him, but you know it could be someone that had a similar voice. But uh, Whoever it is should be locked up and, uh, you know, for a very long time, obviously. Elizabeth Hurley. Thank you, Chris. He knows everything. Yes, I did mean Elizabeth Hurley. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. You both got it. Chris and Peter got it back to back. Uh, yeah, she's the one that uh, she's the one that called Marilyn Monroe fat before. <laughs> Deluded she is. And she hung out with a, uh, for years with a was sleeping with a, a gangster called Dominic's Donnie Shack something. I don't know. Uh, some kind of gangster it wasn't even that high up, but so you know what kind of guy she likes. So uh, she was also, uh, I think she had kids with Steve Bing, I think, but she was his wife or girlfriend or whatever. But uh, anyway, these are not nice people, and uh, the uh, so if these things are, you know, on the, you can understand why the laptops and there's a, you know. There's a pattern merging here, and that is that these laptops seem to contain this this pedophilia stuff. Because if, if Hunter Biden's laptop contains a rape of a Chinese girl, if it contains underage image, images of his underage niece, uh, that falls into that category. I guess not quite as bad as a snuff film that apparently existed on uh, Anthony Weiner's laptop. And uh, yeah, so we don't we don't know. Um, and, and the video there of John Podesta, which, uh, again, apparently is maybe that might be on Wieners and Biden's laptops, too, according to Chris. So there's something there, obviously. And there's um, – that would – you know, you you tell normies again, they're just going to – they're just going to roll their eyes. Oh, sure. Right. Sure. But if you come up with something – uh, you know, good enough documentation that it's happening. Again, they can't refute it. What's the thing? One picture proves a thousand words, so one video proves a million words. And so when you have the evidence like that, they have to cover it up. There's no question about it because they can't possibly take a chance on this getting out to the public because they do. Then their game is up. They can't, you know, continue to... Uh, to maintain that these people are anything, uh, you know, other than monsters. And uh, that's clearly said, if that's, if that's Anthony Podesta, I mean, uh, John Podesta or whoever it was, it's an absolute monster. I mean, it's just, I, I just, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, you know, how you could be sexually excited. Uh, a little kid is screaming in terror like that. I mean, it's just, you know, oh, it's just, that it wasn't fake. The kids screaming. I don't think they faked that. Uh, who it was, I don't know. But it's it's again, it's uh, it's very amazing. You know, it's incredible to listen to. But so we have you know all this going on at the same time. I guess we're you know we'll. I have no hope that they're going to do anything about this laptop because again, they don't. These guys are totally above the law. And if it really does have something like an underage rape under, I mean. They're just not going to do that. We know that the FBI and law enforcement isn't. Now, they would be interested, very interested if it was, you know, an average person. But they know who it is. And they're not about 
to let these guys face the wrath of the law or even the wrath of the public because they would face the wrath of the public. And again, they can't – Hillary Clinton, Podesta, the Bidens, they can't pretend to be anything – I mean they – the mask is off and, you know, not to use a pun with the COVID mask, but the mask is completely off then. And they can't possibly uh, pretend that they're anything else than what, you know, the, the extreme conspiracy theorists have said they are for a very, very long time. So anyway, so we have uh, that stuff going on. I don't know what else is, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, COVID seems to have disappeared largely. Uh, since uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, so I don't think that's by accident. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Um, Chris said, supposedly cops found a bogus note in his car. Okay, I guess you're talking about Tony Scott that was a director of Top Gun, and he was like 68 years old or something. Was, you know, To be jumping from a bridge at that age? Uh, I don't know. Seems kind of an unlikely way to go out. Said cops found a bogus note that didn't match the handwriting, and someone leaked Bozik's info, info to the press about him having brain cancer. Reminds us of when the media reported Paterno's death a day too early. That's right, you know that happens definitely. But uh, Chris, you, you're a wealth of information. I can tell you that you you really really know your stuff, man. So uh, all I got to do is like throw a name or incident out there, and you're on top of it. So uh, you are the man. But. Uh, he was involved. Tony Scott was involved with a lot of military propaganda. Yeah, we made some. He was a big film, certainly Top Gun and lots of uh, of other big films. So, um, yeah, no doubt about that. So, you know, in a lot of these, a lot of these cases you're mentioning, I, I cover in an odd bar and fame, and I hope people will check that out. My latest book, Money Mysteries and Corruption in the Entertainment World, forward by our friend John Barber, and uh, Chris says he kills Chad. Now you're you're. You're keeping the chat room going, my friend. It's fantastic. I think people just sit back and admire your uh, your knowledge and uh, the questions you bring up, the points you bring up, because you you keep you keep it active here. It's uh, you know, and you did the same thing with the TFR chat room <clears throat> uh, when I was there. So it's uh, very much appreciated. So now nah, that's good reading. <laughs> Citizen GX, I thank you for being here. Well, Peter, thanks for Peter Sikash again, just my buddy, along with Chris and Bob Wilson. You guys are, I, I don't know, I guess authors have researchers all the time, but I don't know how many people that do. And I, you guys just send me stuff, and it's just, I, I can't ever repay you. It's fantastic. Uh, Peter says, any idea who you want to do the forward for Hidden History 3? Wow, it's a good question. Um I don't know. I'll have to think around. I, guess, I think it depends on who the publisher is, because if if Skyhorse publishes it, I probably have a better chance of getting uh, more of a name. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask Ron Paul again. <laughs> Problem is, they're not, uh, you know, there's not that many people out there that I that I respect enough that have a name. I don't think Bobby Kennedy would do it. Certainly somebody like Oliver Stone, you know, these people like that that have names that, you know, I'd love to have. I don't think they would do it. Uh, but I don't know, you know, Oliver Stone's, uh, I'm not sure. Latest I see he's, uh, he's been infatuated with Abby Martin. If you saw that interview, that I mean, this is, you know, this is a typical case of an old guy, uh, you know, kind of very, very impressed with a good looking woman. Uh, Chuck says Ventura. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jesse, well, Jesse would be good, but, uh, 
Jesse, you know, I don't know how he'd feel about because I, I know he would not agree with my take on Lincoln in the Civil War. I almost guarantee that. So I, I don't know that he would do it. Uh, Tulsi, I assume it's Tulsi, you mean Citizen GX. Tulsi Gabbard, I don't think is a big conspiracy person. I mean, she has, um, you know, because I met her at a rally. And uh, thanks to, to uh, Jonathan Morley, uh, he actually put the video out that my late friend uh, Brian Lloyd took of me standing there with her with a goofy grin on my face and her holding Survival of the Riches. Uh, I don't know that she ever read it, but uh, we were there. And uh, But shes I don't think she's – she was reading JFK and the Unspeakable, so maybe she thinks that. But I, I doubt she'd be into the conspiracy um, – into the, the, the conspiracy theory of history or conspiracy view of history as much as I have. Uh, Chris says, great subtitle. Thank you for it. Thank, thank you. I, 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 yeah, that's, uh, God, what is it now? It's, uh, what did I have? Hidden, hidden gems from the Orwellian war. war God, I forget the subtitles I come up with. I have it on my uh, uh, file, but uh what is it? Maybe Peter, Chris, uh, remember what the, the, the subtitle I've chosen so far. Pete says, "How about Sean Stone?" Um, I don't know. Sean, Sean would probably like it, but I don't know. I haven't. Uh, he's gotten kind of bigger now. He's appearing in bigger shows, so I, I don't know if I could get him or, or not. Last time I had him on, I protests a while back. He could only stay for like a half hour or something. He was already getting busier. You know, once they start getting busy, you know. Uh, Chuck says James Brown was murdered. I have not looked into that at all. I need to check that. I have no, uh, no knowledge about that whatsoever. So uh, I take your word for it and Chris's word. You both are saying so. It must be something there. I don't know. Don't know much about it. Um, obviously not. I should have. Uh, I could have included it in on borrowed fame. A lot of things. I had so much in there already. I don't know how much I could put anywhere else. Uh, yeah, more stories from the American memory hall. I think yeah, something like that. More. Stories from the Americans. It was something with, you know, from the American memory, more something from the American memory hole. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted, because I think that's what it is. I think that's what our history is. Hidden history is basically the memory hole. So, that George Orwell, you know, invented. And that's basically what hidden, what history has become, is a, is a memory hole, a place for, uh, for inconvenient information to go. And, uh, so that's why you can never run out, you know, maybe I'll have a Hidden History series going up to Hidden History 10 or something. Uh, Hidden History 3, more from the American Memory Hole. Chris says, okay, he's got it, yeah. Now that's it. Hidden History 3, more from the American Memory Hole. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good – now, you know, again, a Skyhorse gets a hold of it, they may not like it because uh, – although I think they did uh, – no, they didn't. The crimes and cover-ups in America, they, they didn't. I wanted Hidden History 2, the prequel – and uh, they came up with that title. And I think I had the. I think I have the uh, subtitle for that. I think. Chuck says the greatest stories never to be told. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's. Um, but yeah, the more you more you look at this, you, know, you go back into history and you find. You know, I mean, I uh, just uh, researching things. And again, thanks to Peter, sent me some great stuff on uh, the conduct during the Wilson years, where we really set the tone for this. Uh, these occupations, the, the the behavior of American troops in Haiti uh, in the Dominican Republic was just awful in the teens. I mean, just incredible. And uh, again, we've we've you can see where this stuff developed from. You know, where I mean, this is not something that just uh, <laughs> that just happened. This is something. This is tradition. It was started in the the Union troops in the Civil War, the scorched earth, scorched earth policy, and the uh, total war. 
And uh, then you had uh, <clears throat> I found some, some great stuff on the American troops conductor in the uh, Philippines with the way they treated the Filipinos when they took over there. Just again, the same kind of familiar pattern. Raping civilians, stealing property, just indiscriminate theft of uh, you know from from civilians. It's really. Uh, Peter said, it's still weird to me they changed HH2 in a title similar to Douglas Siragon. Douglas, and I know Douglas. He's he's been on the show a couple times. Book published the same year. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't know why they wanted that, but <clears throat> I think Hidden History Two would have been better playing out the success of Hidden History, but whatever reason <clears throat> that. Uh, Chris says Orwell's estate is now creating a female perspective of George Orwell's 19. 19- oh God! <laughs> and and what would have would the female perspective be any different? I mean, is, is she going to be? Uh, is the female perspective going to be okay with what was going on with Big Brother? I love Big Brother because I'm a female. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. What the hell sense does that make? That's God. Mm. I don't know, man. That is absolutely ridiculous. But um, it figures, you know, they have to, you know, the 1984, <laughs> as it stands now, is is not something that anybody would want to, um, that the the elitist in charge would want to have advertised as, you know, this is, this is, the people, they, you know, they had teenagers read it in high school for years, but somehow we didn't get the lesson. Hidden History 4, Sticks and Stones. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a good title. Girl Power, you know, absolutely, Chuck. And that's uh, yeah, that's part of the problem. I, somehow I don't think we need a female perspective <laughs> of 1984. I think Winston Smith and Orwell covered it very well in the first time. What we need to do is have a a book maybe pointing out, you know, how, how accurate he was and how much of it has unfortunately come true. That's That would be something that they should have. But uh, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. But... Uh, it's amazing to me that you know the, all the the high school students that were required to read Orwell's nineteen eighty four in high school that they continue to uh, to let them read it. <laughs> it's just amazing to me that they would do that when you know given the message of the book. But you know what are you going to do? But. Uh, so it's uh, D.D. Howard Hunt really purchased the film rights in 1984 in Animal Farm on behalf of the CIA. That I don't know, Chris. I do not know. I have not heard that. E. Howard Hunt would purchase. That's that's interesting for Orwell's estate. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Why would E. Howard did he buy film rights? I didn't know that. That I had no idea. It was made. It was made into a film before Hunt. Uh, it absolutely was. Yes, it was. But uh, very popular book, considering the message. But unfortunately, I guess a generation of high school readers never, uh, never got the message. And Chris said he sent it to me. <laughs> Chris, you sent me so much stuff. I, I don't know what to do. But uh, it's amazing. But anyway, we're just about out of time here. So. Thanks again, everybody. Keep sending forth those tiny rubbles of hopes. Thanks so much for listening to I Protest. I'm not I Protest, the Donald Jeffrey Show. <laughs> Thank you.